following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. We are uh, working our way through the book of 2 Corinthians. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and pull that out. Uh, I've got a Bible app, go ahead and boot that up. And uh, we've been working our way through this book. If you're just joining us today, a good chunk of time we've spent now working our way systematically through uh, this book of the Bible, which is actually a letter. Uh, It's a letter written by a guy called Paul, Paul of Tarsus, to a church in the city of Corinth, the ancient city of Corinth, about the middle of the first century. It's uh, a church that he had a very strained relationship with. And so we've been following Paul's thought as he's worked his way through this book. And today we come to a very, very difficult passage. It's just a hard old passage today. It's a tough text. This is a passage, it's in chapter 6 if you want to start turning there. Uh, This is a passage that I think could actually have fit quite nicely in that series we did last year called Stuff I Wish Wasn't in the Bible. Uh, Because this is one of those texts that probably for a lot of us we would just rather wasn't included in the Bible. Uh, It's a passage that I think some people pretend isn't in the Bible. And life would probably be easier if it wasn't, and we just kind of gloss over it. But this is the beauty of working systematically through a book of the Bible. You don't get to dodge the difficult texts. You don't get to avoid them, and you can't just gravitate towards your hobby horse passages. Uh, What we try and do here at Shore is preach the whole counsel of God. And that means at times, and you know this if you've been around Shore for a little while, dealing with some difficult parts of the Bible, some parts that make us uncomfortable, some parts that challenge us and confront us. Uh, but we just we, we deal with those passages as straightforwardly as we can, and we just try and unpack them, and we try and understand what they meant in their original context and how they apply to our lives today. So that's what we're going to do. Okay? All right. Now that I've uh, piqued your interest, we're going to dive in. This passage is uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, from verse 14, and we'll read through uh, just the first verse in chapter 7 as well. So, here we go. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. And I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Well, just before we dive into the text here, let me just say, uh, I want to really just bookend this message with a word of grace because it is a challenging passage and it's going to confront us at several points. But I want to just preface this by saying everything that this passage says, everything that I'm going to say about this passage, I want you to hear it in the context of grace, God's grace. That's what we're about as a church and ultimately that is the storyline of the Bible is the great grace and love of God, that God loves us, that He is for us, and not against us, and that as a loving father, 
He wants what is best for us, even when sometimes we can't see that ourselves. So I want you to hold everything within that cradle of grace this morning. I hope you can see that's my heart. I hope that I can bring this across in a spirit of grace, and that's very much the context into which this passage is written. Okay, so structurally, this passage is fairly easy to understand because Paul gives one instruction at the beginning of this passage, and then he goes on to unpack it over the next several verses. So the key passage or the key instruction is verse 14. It's a simple statement. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Everything else that Paul says comes out of that. So he goes on to elaborate on that. He goes on to extrapolate that commandment out, and he goes on to give some Old Testament background to that commandment. But everything hangs on that one short statement that Paul makes at the beginning of verse 14. The problem is that it's not entirely clear at the outset exactly what Paul's saying here or exactly what he means by that, partly because in that short statement, he uses a metaphor that's drawn from the world of farming and drawn from the world of farming in the first century, which is the idea of the yoke. So we need to get our heads around this. What's Paul mean when he says, do not be yoked together? Well, the yoke was uh, is a farming tool used in ancient agricultural practices was this big wooden beam and it was placed over the necks of donkeys or ox or whatever you'd use some cattle to plow your field so you'd have this big wooden thing and it would sit over these two animals and it would bind them together so then they would move together as they plowed the field and farmers would use this to, to keep the animals connected as they pulled the plow and interestingly you go back to the law of Moses and there's actually an instruction back in Deuteronomy about this practice of using a yoke. And it says, do not plow a field with an ox and a donkey together. Do not plow the field with the ox and the donkey yoked together. That seems like a bit of a strange command to find in the law of Moses. But partly this is just good practical farming advice, that you don't use two different animals to pull the plow because two different animals, you know, they have different weights, different speeds, different agilities, and it's not going to be effective in plowing your field. But there is a deeper significance to that command. It's actually one of several commands through the law of Moses about mixing different types of things together. So the law also says when you're planting a vineyard, don't plant with two different types of seeds. It also says that don't make your clothes out of two different types of thread. And when you're plowing your field, don't plow with the ox and the donkey together. So what's the point of all this? I mean, God is not as concerned about the particular clothes that you're wearing or what kind of seeds you've got in your vineyard or what kind of animals you're plowing your field with. These have a deeper symbolic significance. They are like an object lesson that point to a much deeper principle, and the principle is holiness. That's the point of those commands. They point to this idea of holiness. Holiness just means to be set apart. Israel was called to be a nation that was set apart, set apart from the nations, other nations, set apart from other gods, set apart from the world, set apart for God, set apart exclusively for the worship and allegiance to the one true God, Yahweh, alone. That was Israel's calling, to be a holy people. So when you get these little commands that seem strange and weird, don't plow the field with the ox and the donkey together, they are pointing to, they are symbolizing this much deeper reality of holiness, that you are not to be bound together with the worship of another God. You're not to be bound to idols. You're not to be bound to the nations and their worship of what is really idolatry. You're not to mix your faith in God with the faith 
in another so-called God. You're not to mix your devotion, your allegiance to Yahweh with allegiance to some other God. Israel, you were to keep yourselves pure. You were to keep yourselves holy. You were to keep yourselves uncontaminated from the world. That's the point of those commands. As in so much of the Mosaic law, they are signposts to a deeper principle, and in this case, the principle is holiness. Now, that's important because that idea of holiness, the principle of holiness, is the backbone to what Paul says in this passage. And I want you to catch that. Don't just focus on the specific command that Paul gives here. Underneath all of this is this deeper principle of holiness. And he's drawing this through from the Old Testament. He's drawing it right through the biblical story. You can tell that by the way in 2 Corinthians 6. Have a look at the way that Paul uses the Old Testament here. Just look down at your text in verse 16 and 17 and 18. What Paul does is he gives you a string of quotations from the Old Testament. He groups them into three chunks. But he's actually, in those three verses, he's quoting five different books of the Old Testament. He's quoting Leviticus and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah and 2 Samuel. But he's grouping them into three chunks. A real sweep of quotations here from the Old Testament. And look at the way this is structured. Here's the key. This is the framework for everything this passage means. In verse 16, you've got these great promises that God gives to Israel. I will live with them. I will walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. These amazing covenant promises that God has bound himself, he has yoked himself to Israel as their God in a covenant relationship with them. They're people of the promise. They're people of the covenant. And then again in verse 18, he reaffirms the same thing in different words. I will be a father to you. You will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. That's a Davidic promise of the great Davidic king who was to come, but it's a promise that for Israel, God was their father. They were his sons and daughters. They exist in this unique and special relationship with him. So you have to hear these promises that God makes to Israel as his covenant people. But then look, sandwiched in between the promises, what have you got? You've got a command in verse 17. And it's a pretty severe command. God says, therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. But all that needs to be heard within the context of the promises. God doesn't just give these commands for the sake of it. He doesn't just give these commands to make life miserable. He gives these commands to Israel because they are people of the promise because they're people of the covenant, because they are unique and set apart, called and holy people. And as a holy people, they are called to come out and be separate from the nations. In other words, to be holy, right? To be set apart from the nations. That's what God is saying. And interestingly here, that particular quotation comes from Isaiah in verse 17. That's written into Israel when they were in a context of exile and they were in Babylon. And they couldn't come out because they'd been taken away from their homeland and they were already in a foreign land and they were immersed in these foreign communities and foreign nations and people that worshipped foreign gods. And yet God's saying to them, I want you to come out and be separate. What does he mean? He means even though you don't have a choice as to where you live in this moment because you've been conquered and exiled, I want you to live as a separate people. I still want you to live as a holy people. Exile does not mean that you dilute your holiness. I still want you to be a set-apart people, set apart from the nations, set apart even from the communities in which you live. I want you to be holy. I want you to be set apart. 
And so you get the stories like people like Daniel, who lived in exile, lived in that time, lived in Babylon, and yet he took this seriously. This calling to come out, this calling to be separate, and so he didn't eat the unclean food. And his friends didn't bow down to the statue. And David kept on praying to Yahweh, even when it was forbidden by a royal edict, because he took this seriously and he set himself apart and he maintained his holiness and he maintained his exclusive allegiance to Yahweh, even in the midst of a people who were worshipping other gods. And that was Israel's calling, to be a holy people. Now, even though we live in a different time and a different circumstance, and the Corinthians that Paul's writing to lived in a different time and a different circumstance from the Old Testament exile in Babylon, there's some very strong connections into our context here. Because we too, as, as God's church, as God's people, we are a holy people. This is the starting point. We now are a holy people. Paul says this in verse 16, we are the temple of the living God. That's who we are now. We are a holy people. The temple was the most holy place on earth, filled with the presence of God. And now in the New Testament, we are that temple. We take on the, the identity of the most holy place on earth. We've been made holy through Jesus Christ. We're a holy people. And these promises that God has made to Israel in the Old Testament, they're our promises now. These are our promises by faith, not just for Israel. That's why Paul says at the beginning of chapter 7, verse 1, Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends. In other words, not just Israel, but we now inherit the promises as the people of God. So verse 16 is ours. I will live among them. I will walk with them. I will be their God. They will be my people. God is our God. He's yoked himself to us. See, before we start talking about yoking ourselves to each other, we've got to see that in the context. God has yoked himself to us. God has bound himself in covenant relationship to us. That's the context in which we apply the instruction about being yoked together with other people. God has first yoked himself to us as a covenant community. And then likewise, verse 18, I will be a father to you. You will be my sons and daughters. That's our promise now. Because we're in Jesus Christ. So we share in his relationship with the Father. God is our heavenly Father now through Jesus Christ. We are his sons, his adopted sons, and his adopted daughters through Jesus Christ. I'm lingering on this because I want you to understand that everything happens within the context of the promises and in the context of the covenant. The command only comes in the midst of the promises that God has made to us. But because we have these promises, dear friends, we've also got the command. Because we have the promises... The command also applies to us. Verse 17 is ours as well. Come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. God commands us to be, as his people, a holy people. We've been made holy through Jesus, and now he calls us to be holy in our lives. And that means we are to be, in some certain sense, set apart from the world. Just like Israel was in Babylon, we live in a, in a context of exile, so to speak. Not a political exile, but a spiritual exile. That We live as God's people scattered among the nations. We live among people who don't share our faith. We live among people who are sometimes hostile, sometimes not hostile, but don't share the same faith that we have in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We live in that context. We live in those cultures. We live in that world. That's a context of exile. And in that context of exile, just like Israel, we are called to be holy. We're called to be set apart. We are called to be distinct people and have distinct lives and be recognizable as Christians and to outwork our holiness out of reverence and love for God. 
So what does it mean then to come out and be separate? What does it mean that we're in the world and yet we're commanded in some sense to come out of the world, come out from among them and be separate? Well, I tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean glory avail. All right? It does not mean that because I know that this is how this sometimes can go is you sort of feel like, are you saying that we're supposed to kind of take off and become like a separate Christian commune? Is that what it means to come out and to be separate from the world? And some people have taken that in that direction, haven't they? Some Christians have taken scriptures like these in that direction and they've seen this as kind of a literal wooden command to literally just cut ourselves off from the world and we separate ourselves from everyone who's not a Christian, and we form this little commune over here, or this little community over here. This is, this is the logic behind Amish communities, for example. I mean, wonderful things about the Amish communities, that the virtues, the Christian virtues that they display are stunning. Think of the example of forgiveness years ago, when there was that shooting in an Amish community in the States, and the Christian forgiveness they demonstrated was incredible. But it's on this point that I think they are misguided, that they've taken this as a very literal wooden commandment that we are, to, we are just to completely separate ourselves from the world, from the culture, and just form a completely isolated and incubated Christian commune. And the problem with that is it's just not what Jesus did. I mean, you only need to look at the life of Jesus to see. He mixed with all sorts, didn't he? I mean, he crossed every possible social divide, cultural divide. He ate with tax collectors, drunkards, prostitutes, sinners, just rattle off the list not just people who followed god people who were far from god some people who didn't want anything to do with god but jesus moved towards them with love and with grace and with compassion so whatever this passage means it does not mean glory avail it does not mean separate isolated christian commune it does not mean we all go off into some little place and just have a holy separate community there we are very much in the world and we need to be in the world and engage with our cultures and engage with our neighborhoods and engage with our communities and engage in the lives of non-Christians around us. That is all very good and very healthy. But what holiness does mean, what it does mean, is what Paul says in verse 14. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. It doesn't mean we cut ourselves off from all contact with non-Christians. It certainly doesn't mean we, do, we have some kind of sense of superiority. But it does mean that we are not to be yoked together with unbelievers. So what does it mean then to be yoked? Well, you come back to the image of the animals pulling the plow. Two animals bound together pulling the plow. And if you take that as an analogy of human relationships, then to be yoked together simply means to be closely bound as allies. To be closely bound with another person as an ally. So we're not talking about ordinary friendships. We're not talking about just normal working relationships. We're not talking about your neighbors. We're not talking about just casual relationships we have. We're talking about relationships in which you are bound to another person. Closely bound, tightly bound. To another person, where there is some kind of yoke that sits over the top of your two lives, usually two individual lives. There is some kind of binding, there is some kind of agreement or partnership or formality that binds your lives together and brings you into a very close proximity with one another. Binding, yoking is a situation in which you've got a high level of dependence upon one another where you've got a lot of shared interest or vested interest with one another, where your lives become all intermingled with one another. You really open your lives up to 
one another. And there's a cementing that happens. There's a glue that binds your lives together. It's not every relationship. It may just be the one or the two or the three closest relationships that you have that you would consider to be yoking relationships where you really are bound intimately to another person. And it's in those relationships and only those relationships that the Scripture calls us not to be yoked together as Christians with an unbeliever. Now, I know that can sound judgmental. I know that can sound severe. God doesn't say this because he's a killjoy. God doesn't say this because he just likes dishing out difficult commands. He He says it because he cares about our holiness. And he cares that we are to be a set apart people. So I want to just suggest a couple of areas of life into which this command and which this instruction might apply for us. You ready? It's pretty quiet in here this morning. (laughs) wonder why that is. (laughs) I've got my car running in the car park. I'm good to go. First area is marriage. And I think that's pretty clear from the text. It's the area in which often this passage is applied, and I think rightly so. In the marriage relationship, it certainly constitutes a yoking, certainly constitutes a relationship in which you are tightly bound, closely bound. It should be the most intimate and dear and deep relationship of your life. Therefore, it's a yoked relationship. Therefore, it's a relationship in which the Scripture calls us as Christians not to be yoked together to someone who doesn't share our faith. What that means is simply that when you, if you're a Christian, when you're choosing a marriage partner, you're choosing someone to bind yourself to in marriage, that it is forefront in your mind to bind yourself to someone who shares your faith. Bind yourself to a Christian. God's not trying to just be mean. God's not trying to just limit the pool of people for you to marry. God cares about your holiness. God wants to make you a set-apart person. And so, I want to just speak on that note to three groups of you. Firstly, those of you that are in the dating relationships. Those of you that are in the dating stage of life, at the point, if you're a Christian, at the point that you are getting into a serious dating relationship, a ser- and I'm not talking about just a casual, you know, maybe go out once or twice, but at the point you are looking at getting into a serious dating relationship with someone, I want to encourage you to make sure that person's a Christian. If you are committed to marrying a Christian person, then I want to encourage you to also be committed. It's a very, very wise move to go back a few steps and decide, therefore, I'm only getting into a serious dating relationship with someone that shares my faith. Otherwise, you're going to date that person for a little. And look, I I know the arguments that get used here. And people say, no, no, but I'm going to win them to Christ. I'm going to date them for a little while. And then I'm going to win them to Jesus. And it's actually like a form of evangelism. It's like relationship evangelism. And they're going to be a Christian, and then we're going to get married, and then we're going to live happily ever after. But how do you know that's going to happen? How do you know? It's an awfully big gamble to take. So then you get into a relationship with this person, and you're dating them, and you're in a serious dating relationship, and the years go by, and the years go by, and they're not becoming a Christian. And then what happens? You're hoping they become a Christian, and maybe they're hoping they become a Christian too, because they're looking at you, and they realize, You're not going to get married to them if they're not a Christian. So then what happens? They start to feel pressure. They start to feel, I guess I better become a Christian then. If this person wants me to become a Christian. And often if they're going to become a Christian, it's because of you and not because of the Lord. It's because they want to get married to you. 
And that's a terrible basis on which for a person to become a Christian because then their faith is inextricably bound to you. And if that relationship happens to bust up, their faith can be over as well. Their faith can be devastated. Now, I know that you've heard the stories of people who get into these dating relationships and then the person does become a Christian. And that's wonderful. And we celebrate that. But you don't know whether that is going to happen. And even if that person becomes a Christian down the track, it doesn't mean it's a wise decision up front. It doesn't mean it's a good decision up front. It doesn't mean... you. Of course, you can have a happy marriage if you're a Christian married to a non-Christian. Please don't hear me saying that this means the marriage is going to bust up and it's going to be a terrible relationship. You can be very, very happily married, Christian and non-Christian. But this, this is not a passage that's talking about happiness. It's a passage that's talking about holiness. It's a passage that's talking about what does it mean for you to be holy, for you to be set apart. And if you're in this relationship, a marriage relationship with a non-Christian, you're going to be like that situation where you've got the ox and the donkey trying to plow the field together. Because spiritually speaking, you are two different animals. You might have many, many common interests. You might have many shared interests. You might be so compatible on so many levels, but at the deepest level of your being, your soul, you're on different planets. That's why Paul says in this passage, what commonality does light have with darkness? And you're going to be like the ox and the donkey trying to plow the field together. That doesn't mean your marriage won't work, but it means spiritually speaking, you're going to be trying to move ahead. And they're holding back. You're going to be trying to move this way. They're going back this way. And spiritually speaking, you are not going to be an effective team as a unit for the Lord moving together. You may be compatible. You may have many shared interests and you may be very much in love. But spiritually speaking, that's a problem. So I want to encourage you, if you're in that dating stage of life, If you are committed not to marrying a non-Christian, then it's a very wise move not even to take a step down that track, but decide rather that when you are going to get into a seriously committed dating relationship, decide that you are going to do that with someone who shares your faith. And if they're not a Christian, hold back, develop a friendship, share your faith with them, pray for them, but wait until, Lord willing, they become a Christian and then reevaluate the relationship. Secondly, I want to speak to those of you that have been previously married. And those who have been previously married often experience an extreme sense of loneliness that compels them to want to find someone else and get remarried. And that in itself is a good thing, and it's right to get remarried. But I want to encourage you, if you're a Christian and you're looking towards remarriage, to also take that passage seriously and choose to bind yourself, choose to yoke yourself to someone who shares your faith. On this point, the Scriptures are actually even clearer than they are with a dating relationship because Paul explicitly says in 1 Corinthians 7, 39, a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. It doesn't get much clearer than that. So if you're looking to remarry, and by the way, if this applies to second marriages, why would it not apply to first marriages? If you're looking to remarry someone and you're a believer, make sure that person belongs to the Lord. And that means trusting God that he will bring you that person at the right time if that is his will and his grace is sufficient for you. So take that passage to heart. And thirdly, I wanted to speak to those of you who are Christians and you are already married 
to a non-Christian. And I know how easy it is for all this to sound so judgmental and so harsh, but I just hope today that you can hear the word that you need is not a word of judgment, it's a word of grace. It's a word of grace. I want to be straightforward with this passage because it's critical for people who have not made that decision yet. But if you are in a marriage relationship, if you are bound to someone and they're a non-Christian, God is going to give you grace upon grace upon grace. He is for you. That's what you need to hear. You don't need to feel condemned. You don't need to be loaded up with guilt. You just need to know God loves you and he is for you and he is with you and he is going to sustain you and he's going to give you his grace. And all I would say to you is continue to protect your own faith in the context of that marriage. Surround yourself with healthy Christian community, people who will encourage you in your faith, people who will pray for you, people who will spur you on in your faith. If you've got kids, continue nurturing their hearts in the Lord as much as you can. I know it depends on where your spouse is, spiritually speaking, but continue to shepherd them towards Christ. Continue to immerse them in a healthy Christian community, a church, if you can, as far as it depends on you. Continue taking those steps so that you continue growing towards the Lord. But I want you to hear a word of grace and not a word of condemnation. All right, well, that's the marriage relationship. I want to take this into one other area of life, and that's working relationships. In Philippians 4, Paul uses an interesting word. He talks about one of his colleagues as a yoke fellow. Philippians 4, 3. Most people think he's talking about Luke, his close ministry colleague. And he says, I urge you, my loyal yoke fellow. Same word, based on the same word, yoke. And so he's not talking there about a marriage relationship. He's talking about a working relationship. And he's calling Luke his yoke fellow because Luke is an intimate colleague of his who he is bound to in a working sense. And I don't think there's any reason just to limit this, by the way, to Christian ministry context. This is a working relationship in which this guy was part of Paul's inner circle. Their lives were closely bound up in this ministry partnership. And Paul says, you are my yoke fellow. What that suggests to us is that this passage and this idea of being unequally yoked has application beyond just marriage relationships into other areas of our lives. It might apply to a working relationship. Not all working relationships, of course. Again, please, this does not mean we should only work with Christians, only be in a purely Christian business or whatever. This means that when you are looking at very, very close working relationships, you're looking at getting into a close business partnership with someone, a very close working venture with someone, a situation in which your lives are glued together, in which you really are hitching your star to their wagon, in which there is a cementing of, 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 of lives in those contexts, if that's a working relationship, but it's a situation in which you really are going to be bound together, scriptures call us to make sure that person is a Christian. And again, I know this can sound like, well, that's, you know, you don't even live in the real world. This doesn't work. You don't understand how business works. You don't have those options. You don't have those opportunities. But let me tell you a story. There's a guy in our church who's very senior in his profession, works in a firm in the city. Years ago, he was offered a full directorship in his company with part ownership in the company. And he turned it down. And the reason he turned it down is because of this passage. Because as he looked at the scriptures and he prayed this decision through, he honestly believed that would be a situation where he was going to be yoked to this company and specifically to the senior partner of this firm in a way that ran against the spirit of what the Lord commands us. And so he said no. He believed he was going to be yoked to that senior partner who was not a Christian. So decisions were going to be made that were out of his control that would deeply affect his life. And there would be a binding and a cementing of lives that ran against the spirit of this passage. So he said no. 
And he's continued to stay in that firm. And he's been very successful in his career. And he's been treated well by this guy through the years. But he made that decision, tough decision, costly decision. But he made it because he takes this principle seriously. And that's what we're called to do, is to take the scripture seriously. I know there's a lot of spiritual discernment that are needed in these situations. I know that it's hard sometimes to tease out exactly what relationships do and don't constitute a yoking together. But even the fact that you would be willing to do that is a good step. I think most people just make these kinds of decisions and get into these kinds of partnerships without a thought for what their faith might have to say into that situation, what the scriptures might have to say into that situation. If you're willing to take that decision, if you're on the threshold of, of a very close business partnership or working relationship, this kind of relationship, if you would be willing to bring that relationship to God and lay it down and say, God, I want your wisdom here. I want to be honest with myself. I want to be honest with this passage. And I want to honestly ask your spirit to search my heart and convict me if this is a relationship that would be unequally yoked. I pray that you would highlight it to me so that I would have the courage not to get myself into that situation. Even to go through that process is such a healthy one, even if it's not entirely clear to you. Come honestly before the Lord with this passage and talk to someone who you respect, who knows the Lord, who you trust, not just someone you think is going to say yes because you really want to say yes, but someone that you know is going to give you godly counsel and godly advice and bring that decision to them and say, hey, look, I'm looking at getting into this situation. I'm looking at getting into this partnership here. I just want to honestly just lay this before you and ask you to seek this out with me and tell me, do you think this is a yoking kind of thing? And is this a situation in which I could be unequally yoked? So I know this is tough. I know this is hard. I know that this is difficult. I know there's a, there's a tendency here for this to sound legalistic and sound judgmental. And again, I hope you can see this in the context of grace. I know some of you are mad at me for saying this stuff. I know some of you have taken out that picture of me that you've got in your wallet and you've ripped it up and I'm off the Christmas card list and I know it's very hard. I, I want to simply be faithful to preach the scriptures to you and to bring the whole counsel of God to you. But I hope again that you can hear this within the context of God's grace, that we are people of the promise. And the only reason we have difficult commands like this is because we have extraordinary promises. Because we are a covenant community whom God has bound himself to and now he is saying to us, be careful with who you bind yourself to in human relationships because he is the God who has yoked himself to us. So let's be wise. We've been made holy through Christ but that doesn't leave us where we are. Grace compels us forward. It compels us to be holy people, just as we've been made holy people. So let's be wise. Let's be prayerful in these decisions. Let's be careful. Let's be discerning. And let's seek, as the Scripture says, to free ourselves from anything that would contaminate our faith and our loyalty to God, perfecting holiness out of reverence for the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, you know there's so many situations in this room so many stories, and uh, Lord, I'm so aware of the, of the ways in which this kind of teaching affects us. And you know, God, you know the, the different emotions that this can stir. Lord, you know the different things that are going through our minds at the moment. I want to pray, God, that your spirit would just descend upon us now. I want to pray, God, that where you need to bring conviction into people's lives now that you would do that. Lord, for those who, who genuinely right now do need to hear a word of conviction, Lord, 
that maybe just on the on the precipice of making a decision, getting into a relationship that is just not healthy, I pray, God, by your Spirit, you would convict them. I pray that you would do that with all gentleness and tenderness. That you just prompt their hearts and stir their hearts to have the courage to step away. God, I pray for those who are already bound up and caught up in relationships that just may not be the best. I pray, God, your grace would just descend upon them. And I pray, God, they'd be able to see your way forward for their lives. I pray your word would come to them, not as a severe and a harsh word, but as a word of grace, as a word of love. I pray they would know they are deeply, deeply held in your loving arms of grace, that nothing is going to change that. I pray, Lord, for those who just might be tempted because of this teaching is to feel guilt, shame, fear, and condemnation. And I pray by your Spirit you would take that away. Lord, I trust you with that, that you would just take that away. That is not of you, Father. That is not where you want to lead us. That is not what you have for us. We pray, Lord, that all guilt and shame would be just taken away, nailed to the cross, and we would see Jesus. And we would see him as the one who offers hope and a future, whatever our situation may be. God, we do pray you'd make us wise. We do pray that you would make us holy. And we know, Lord, that often in our lives, that call to holiness is a high and a difficult calling. It's only by your grace that we can ever even take the very first step. So we love you, Lord. We lift our lives to you. We lift all of our relationships to you. This web of relationships that each of our lives are tangled up in. We lift them to you. We pray in each of them, Lord, you would help us to know what it means to be your holy people. We pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.